Today, you are part of an important conversation about our shared future. The Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues explores a diversity of viewpoints on international and public policy issues to promote understanding and encourage debate across the university and the state of Nebraska. Since its inception in 1988, hundreds of distinguished speakers have challenged and inspired us, making this forum one of the preeminent speaker series in higher education. It all started when Ian Jack Thompson imagined a forum on global issues that would increase Nebraskans' understanding of cultures and events from around the world. Jack's perspective was influenced by his travels, his role in helping to found the United Nations, and his work at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. As president of the Cooper Foundation in Lincoln, Jack pledged substantial funding to the forum, and the University of Nebraska and Leeds Center for Performing Arts agreed to co-sponsor. Later, Jack and his wife Katie created the Thompson Family Fund to support the forum and other programs. Today, major support is provided by the Cooper Foundation, Leeds Center for Performing Arts, and University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We hope this talk sparks an exciting conversation among you. And now, on with the show. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Mike Zeleny with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. It's my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues. Thank you for sharing this lovely winter evening with us. For more than a quarter century, the University and the Cooper Foundation have partnered with the Lead Center for Performing Arts to make this forum possible. Tonight, we are pleased to be joined by our co-sponsor, the University Office of Academic Success and Intercultural Services. OASIS, located in the Gone Multicultural Center, enhances student success here at UNL by promoting academic excellence, diversity awareness, and social engagement. Yeah. Great round of applause for OASIS. This year, as you know, the Ian Thompson Forum speakers are addressing the theme activism. It's now my pleasure to introduce to you a true champion among activists. Wes Moore is the founder and CEO of Bridge EDU. It's a unique first-year college on-ramp and career preparedness program. Moore is also the New York Times best-selling author of two books, The Other Wes Moore and The Work. Moore graduated Phi Theta Kappa from Valley Forge Military College and Phi Beta Kappa from Johns Hopkins University. He completed a Master's of Literature in International Relations from Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar. After that, West served as a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division of the U.S. Army and participated in a combat tour of duty in Afghanistan. Currently, West lives in Baltimore with his wife and two children. This evening, after Mr. Moore's remarks, you'll have the opportunity to ask him questions via Twitter. Please use the hashtag #EnThompsonForum. The title of tonight's presentation is "The Other West Moore: One Name, Two Fates." Now, let's give a rousing welcome to West Moore.
Good evening. Bless you guys. Thank you. Good evening. I am, uh, I am so incredibly excited to, uh, to be here. Mike, thank you so much for, uh, for the introduction to, uh, to, the, to the Ian Thompson uh, Forum and to the, to the Thompson family. Thank you so much for, for having me here. This is incredibly exciting uh, for me um, because not often do you get a chance to really talk about an issue that, uh, that I really feel is one of the ones that I was actually meant to do and that is to be an activist. And I wasn't really even quite sure what exactly that meant at first. And what does it mean to be an activist? What does it mean to fight for something? What does it mean to find that thing that you're willing to give everything up for in order to see an impact? And the beautiful thing about it that I realized is that each and every one of us have that level of activism in us. You know, oftentimes when people say, well, what is it, you know, how do we find that level of service? What do we, how do we find that thing that we do? Uh, oftentimes I say, well, you know, there is no single definition of service. There's no single thing that we're all supposed to be doing. But it is about find that thing that you know makes your heart beat a little bit faster. Find that thing, find that place that you know where your greatest skills and your greatest joys begin to start overlapping with the world's greatest needs and then choose to do something about it. And in the same breath, never forget about who it is that we're supposed to be fighting for. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here to talk about this issue on such a grand, grand stage. I mean, you walk around and you know that this is the same stage that, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev and Desmond Tutu were on and Cheryl, Cheryl Wu Dunn is gonna be here later on in the year. And so first, for anyone who got the dates mixed up, I apologize. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I am excited to talk a little bit about who it is that we're supposed to be fighting for and who it is that we're supposed to be remembering. You know, the book that, uh, that we're just speaking about, the, a book called The Other West Moore, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about what that book is and what inspired it. But it was a real learning experience for me because I had no idea the way the publishing industry worked. Right? I had no idea that when you pick up a book, and this is any book, when you pick up a book and you open up the book and you're flipping through the pages, what you see on the inside of a book, that is what the author wants to share with the world. That's the author's intent. Those are the author's words, right? Everything you see on the outside of a book, the cover, the title, the airbrushed author photos, <laughs> the blurbs, all that kind of stuff, right? That is what the publisher wants to share with the world. The publisher will hold on to those rights for a reason. Because the publisher knows that when you walk into a bookstore as a consumer, that they then have 3.2 seconds to get your attention. They've done the math on this. And if they do not get your attention in 3.2 seconds, you as a consumer will just keep on walking and you will move on to the next book, right? So they will do whatever it takes in 3.2 seconds to get your attention. I did not know that. I thought publishers actually cared about what authors thought, right? So about six months before the book was set to come out, it was just called Untitled by Wes Moore. They call me in. The entire marketing team is there. We're sitting around this table. And they're like, Wes, what do you think the title of your book should be? Right? They wanted to make me feel like I was part of the process. <laughs> it, was very, it was very nice of them. Um, and I said, you know what? 
I'm really glad y'all asked me because there's like six titles that I really like. And they're like, what are they? I was like, okay, what about Baltimore Suns? Or what about All the Difference? Or what about Out of Many? Or what about End of the Innocence? Or what about Life After Death? Or what about, and I had all these different titles and I had reasons for all of them. And I looked at them and I said, so y'all can go ahead and choose between any of those six titles because I'm good with any of them. And they looked at me and they said, that's very kind of you. Um, and they said, but we think we have a better idea. And they said, what do you think about the other Wes Moore? And I said, that might be the dumbest book title that I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. A true story. And they said, what don't you like about it? I was like, there's a whole bunch of things I don't like about it. I said, but let me go ahead and start with three, okay? The first thing I told mine like about it was I tried to make it very clear that this story is not just about these two kids. It's not just about one name. It's not just about one street or one neighborhood. It's not about one socioeconomic group. It's not about one race. It's not about one demographic. It's not about one generation. It's about all of us. It's about the decisions that we make in our lives and tantamount to that, the people who we have in our lives who are helping us to make those decisions. So by putting the name inside of the title of the book, are you not completely negating that entire fact, right? That's one. Second thing, I told mine to not like about that title. I said, what self-respected author do you know that puts their own name inside of a title of a book that they've written, right? No, the other J.K. Rowling, the other Stephen King, the other James Baldwin, it sounds ridiculous, right? And then the third thing that I told mine not like about it, I said, listen guys, no one knows who one Westmore is. So, so, so why does anybody care who the other Westmore is? So, so I said this to them and they smiled and they said, those are actually all really good points. <laughs> they said, the problem though, is that you're missing the point. Because you're absolutely right. It is not about you. And it's not about him. The name is completely irrelevant. It does not matter. You can throw any name inside of that book title. Because the truth is, there are Westmores that exist in every one of our communities and in every one of our schools and in every one of our homes. People who are one decision away from going in one direction or going in a completely different direction. Kids who every day are straddling this line of greatness. And the problem is they don't even know it. The most important thing about the title is not the name. The most important thing about the title is the other. The fact that our society is full of others. People who might not look like us, people who might not speak like us, people who might come from, no, from another part of town or another part of the state or another part of the country or another part of the world than us. But people whose destiny matters as much to the long-term safety and security and greatness of our communities as ours does. The others. The ones who we are surrounded by every single day 
who need and deserve a champion and are silently looking at us in our eyes and asking us if we're willing to be that champion for them. The others. And frankly, it wasn't something that I really thought about or something that I really understood until I was forced to. Because the day after, I, I just received a Rhodes Scholarship when I was a senior in college, and the day after, the Baltimore Sun, which was the name of my hometown paper, which, by the way, I thought calling the book Baltimore Suns would be a cute play on that. Um, my publisher thought differently. But uh, the Baltimore Sun wrote this article about this local kid who had just received a Rhodes Scholarship. And in the article, they talked a little bit about, about what the Rhodes Scholarship is and how I was going to be one of 32 American students now going overseas to go study. And in the article, they talked a little bit about my childhood and my background. They talked about the fact that I only have two memories of my father. And how the first memory was when I was close to my fourth birthday. And... Um, and my mother had a bunch of rules in her house, but one of her big rules was that men do not put their hands on women. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized the reason that she was so insistent on that rule was because of her own past. And she always said, I will never tolerate it if I see it. And I especially will not tolerate it if I see it in my son. Um, and I have an older sister who's like six years older than me. And I have a younger sister who's 13 months younger than me. And me and my older sister used to get in like, when I say fights, I'm not talking like, oh, get away from me. I'm talking like closed fist MMA fights. <laughs> and, uh, and my mother, every time she would see us fighting, she would always grab me. And she would say, she'd yell at me all the time. She's like, you do not put your hands on women. You do not put your hands on women. And I'd have to explain to my mother and say, but mommy, this is not a woman. <laughs> this, this, this is Nikki. This is different. And my mother didn't see the difference between the two. And then finally, one day, I'm sitting there in a mind business, and Nikki starts blowing my face like, I told her to stop. She wouldn't stop. She gets up and she runs away, and I get up and I run after her, right? And as soon as I caught her, I cocked my fist back and I punched her. And as soon as I connected, I turned around and I saw my mom. So I knew it was about to get real bad real quick, right? So she starts coming after me. I'm running in the other direction. And, and the house we lived in was a small house, but there was a, uh, it was the, the bedroom that we were in was basically a closet that they converted into a bedroom when my baby sister was born. So we had a little bed in there for me, and we had a crib for my baby sister. And that was all that was in this room. So I'm, I'm running around the, room, I'm around the room trying to find a place to hide, and there's no place to hide in this room. <laughs> and then finally, I just kind of sit down, and I get myself mentally prepared for what's about to happen to me. <laughs> and... Hear footsteps, hear the knock on the door, door opens up, and my father walks in the room. And when he walked in the room, he sat on the bed and he put me on his lap. And he started explaining to me what I had done so wrong. And while my job is to protect women and not to hit them, while my job is to protect my family and not to go after them. And he told me that I needed to go downstairs to go apologize to my mother and to my sister. But he told me that he would come with me. And uh, as we're walking downstairs together, I'm holding on to his hand, and literally my entire hand wrapped around his finger. And he had this, really, he had this funny way of walking when he walked downstairs because he always stuck his chest out. 
And so I'm like four years old and I'm looking at him and I'm sticking my chest out too. Um, because my father was everything that I ever wanted to be. And the only other memory that I had of him was about six months later when I watched him die. And as tough as I thought I had it, or as tough as I thought my sisters had it, the person who really had it toughest was my mom. Because now here she was, a widow with three children, who was now gonna raise these kids on her own, and in no way was this the life that she had expected, or to be honest, the life that she had prepared for. And she was having a really difficult time with the transition. Uh, and then finally she called up her parents, my grandparents, who were living up in the South Bronx in New York, and said that she needed help. And they gave the answer that she was hoping that they would give, which is bring the kids up here and we can help. And almost immediately as I got up there, I found myself getting lost. I found myself picking and choosing which days were worthwhile to go to school. I was saying earlier, I found myself hurting people that actually love me so I could impress people that could care less about me. By the time I was 11 years old was the first time that I felt handcuffs on my wrists. 11. And by the time I was 13 years old, I found out that when my mom makes threats, that she's not playing. Because she'd been threatening this idea of military school ever since I was eight. And she's like, you know, if you don't get it together, I'm saying in military school, and I'd look at her and I'd say, Mommy, I can see I'm hurting you, and I'm gonna work harder. And then when I was nine, she started giving me brochures to show me she wasn't playing around. <laughs> so I'd look at the brochures. And I'm like, all right, Mommy, I can see you're serious, I'm gonna work harder. And then when I was 10, 11, 12, threats kept coming and I kept on blowing her off and, and I, I kept getting worse. And I kept getting more lost. And then finally when I was 13, she came up to me and she's like, I can't do this anymore. I'm gonna stay in the military school. And I looked at her and I said, mommy, I can see I'm hurting you and I'm gonna work harder. And she's like, nah, you're going next week. And <laughs> she started packing my stuff up. And, and honestly, even when we got in the car, I thought we would just drive around the block a few times. <laughs> kind of like a scared straight thing or something like that. And, and I'm like, but then she kept on driving and she drove all the way to Pennsylvania. And, and, and at some point it wasn't funny anymore. And, and she shows up at this school and had these big black gates that surrounded the school. And it was, it was wild because in there they would always tell us you know, if y'all don't like it here, there's a train station right in Wayne. You can go home anytime you want. And so every time they would turn their backs, I would just take them up in that offer, right? And I'd run away, and I'd run through the woods, and I'd try to find this train station, train station and I kept on getting lost. So finally, after uh, four days, I'd already run away five times. And I was in my room, and, and my roommate's there, and my squad leader comes into the room. We call the room to attention. Attention. Stay attention. And my squad leader says to my roommate, he says, get out. I got to talk to more. So my roommate grabs his stuff and he leaves and I'm staying in attention. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not good. Because <laughs> whatever's about to go down, he does more witnesses. So I'm just standing there at attention. <laughs> and I'm just waiting. And, and he tells me to sit down, so I sit down. And he says, listen, Moore, it's, uh, it's obvious you don't want to be here. And quite honestly, we really don't want you here either. So I've actually drawn you a map on how to get to the train station. <laughs> it's true. 
And so he reaches in his pocket and pulls out this map. And it's got like, it's, it seriously has like, it has a legend on it. It has handwritten notes. It has landmarks. It has pace counts. I mean, he pulled this thing out like he just handed me a, a, a Powerball ticket. And there are seriously tears welling up in my eyes. And I'm like, listen, I will never forget you. <laughs> I'm like, when you get out, let me know. We'll grab lunch, you know. I'm just like so excited because I just want, I wanted nothing more than just to go home. And he just tells me to get out of there. And so that night I planned this whole big great escape. And they, they, they found me in the middle of the woods at one o'clock in the morning um, because the map was fake. The map took me to the middle of the woods. They just, they, just, they just enjoyed watching me do circles in the woods in the middle of the night. And, and I am like, and I am so angry at this point. I am so, first of all, I'm angry because I'm like, you know, some kind of, I'm the butt of their social experiment. <laughs> but also I'm angry because I feel like I'm trying to tell these people what I need and nobody's listening to me. I don't want to be here. And they're not listening to me. And so finally they found me in the middle of the woods and they brought me back to campus and we were allowed no outside communication, no phone calls, no radios, television, nothing. It's a chance you're either going to succeed as a team or you will fail as a team and the choice is completely yours. But they said, if we don't make an exception, we're gonna lose them. So they said, more, you have five minutes to make a phone call, call whoever you want, we don't care, but you have five minutes. So I called the only number that I knew, which was my mom. And she wouldn't expect me to hear from you for about eight weeks. And now here it was on day four, one o'clock in the morning, she gets a phone call, so she's freaking out. I'm like, mommy, thank you for this wonderful opportunity, but I'm really ready to come home. <laughs> Do you need directions on how to get here? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to explain to this woman who was raising three kids on her own what she needed to do to make my life easier. And, uh, and she stopped me. And she said, too many people have sacrificed in order for you to be there. And too many people are rooting for you. And you've got to understand it is not all about you. She helped me to understand, and time helped me to understand, that the only way that I was going to make it was if my friends and my plea brothers were there to push me. And the only way that they were going to make it was if I was there to push them. She helped me and they helped me to understand that we lived in a completely interconnected society. And the only way that my presence was going to make sense was if I put myself in a position for it to make sense. By the end of that first year, I was doing a little better academically because this stuff actually started making sense and I could play sports because I wasn't on probation anymore. And for the first time in my life, I felt like when people asked my mom, how's Wes doing? She could say he's doing okay and not be lying. And that actually meant something to me. And oftentimes when people say, so was it about the fact that you got picked up and moved or sent here or whatever, did that make all the difference in your life? And I tell them the truth is, is that what happened to me wasn't the fact that I was physically transported. What happened to me wasn't the fact that I was picked up and moved around. 
Because I know people that people thought that was going to be the answer. And frankly, all they did was crash and burn. What happened to me was I found myself surrounded by people. Starting with my mom and my grandparents, but eventually leading to this amazing string of role models and mentors and supporters. And people who helped me to understand that the world is bigger than what was just directly in front of me. People who helped me to understand that we lived in a big and a beautiful and a bright world and that I actually had a place in it. People who helped me to get that there was never going to be any accidents of birth, not being black or being poor, not being from Baltimore, being from the Bronx or being fatherless, that was ever going to define me or that was ever going to limit me. And so in essence, what they did was they taught me what it meant to be free. And so fast forward, I ended up staying when I had the option to go back to school in Baltimore. I ended up finishing school. I joined the Army right out of high school. I went to junior college. After that, I went to Johns Hopkins. And while I was a senior, Johns Hopkins was when the Baltimore Sun was writing this article about this local kid who just got this scholarship. But at the same time, they were writing a whole series of articles about four guys who one day walked into a jewelry store. And the first two guys walk in the jewelry store and they're reaching their coats and they pulled out guns and they cocked the guns back and they started pointing the guns at everybody inside the store and telling everybody to get on the ground and keep your hands on top of your heads. And everybody who was inside the store just kept their heads down and they listened as glass kept on smashing around them. Ten seconds later, two other guys walked in the jewelry store and when they walked in the store, they reached in their coats and they pulled out mallets. One guy with a gun, one guy with a mallet went to the left. One guy with a gun, one guy with a mallet went to the right. They met in the back of the store with a little over $400,000 worth of jewelry. And one of them yelled, let's go. And then all four guys then ran out of the center of the store and then ran outside to the adjacent parking lot. One of the people that was inside the store that day was an off-duty police officer who was moonlighting as a security guard. He was a 14-year veteran of the Baltimore Police Force. He was a three-time recipient of Police Officer of the Year. He was also a father of five who just had triplets. And the reason he was working that day was because it was his day off from the police force and he took on a second job as a security guard to make extra money for his family. And he got up off the ground and he drew his weapon and he ran outside to see if he could stop the guys from getting away. And when he ran outside, he started kneeling next to cars and vehicles to give himself cover. But he didn't realize that one of the cars that he was kneeling next to was one of the cars that the guys were in. And a window rolled down and he was shot three times at point blank range and he was killed instantly. There was a 12-day national manhunt for those four guys, and finally after 12 days, all four guys were caught. And one of the people that the police were looking for that was eventually captured and tried and convicted and sentenced for the crime was a guy whose name was also Westmore. And the more I learned about him, and the more I learned about this crime, and the more I learned about this tragedy, the more I realized how much more we had in common than just our names. 
And one day I just decided to write him a note. And literally the, the first note that I wrote him was like, hey Wes, my name is Wes, here's how I heard about you. And I had a whole list of questions that I asked him. And a month later, I got a letter back from Jessup Correctional Institution. And it'd be one thing if the letter that I got back from him, if he wrote the letter in crayon or magic marker, or he wrote it with his whole hand, or instead of using words, he used pictures or something like that. Because if that's a letter that I would have gotten back from him, I actually might have looked at that letter and said to myself, I guess I get it. I guess this makes sense. The problem is I've never received that letter from him. The problem is a letter that I did receive from him was one of the most interesting and articulate letters that I've ever received in my life. And it's only led to more questions. And that one letter turned to dozens of letters, those dozens of letters turned to dozens of visits, and now I have known Wes for over a decade. And it's interesting because I think oftentimes when people say, so what was the thing, what was, you know, the, the, the difference between you two? And I remember, I remember I had someone last year come up to me and they were like, you know, I want to let you know I didn't like your book. And I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> but I said, but if you don't mind me asking, what didn't you like about it? And they said, well, I feel like you tell the story of these two kids and at the very end of it, you don't give us a single answer. Like, what's the one thing that we can do to help kids go one way or help kids go another way? You don't, you don't give an answer. And I said, because there is no single answer. Raising kids is amazingly complicated. And when you happen to raise kids in some of the most dangerous and precarious communities of our country, it is that much more complicated. I will debate with anybody who wants to tell me that every child is born with the same amount of assets. Because there's anybody who really does believe that, there are some communities in this state alone that I would love to take you to and hear you make that same argument. I, I am a very firm believer that the potential in this country is universal. Opportunity is not. And the difference between those two the difference between those two, between potential and where we all end up, is where we all collectively come in. It's where we all collectively come in when we say we are going to choose to pay attention and not simply to be apathetic. That we are going to choose, make a very deliberate decision to understand how these roads do diverge and then where can we come in to serve as bridges and guides and supporters. What are those things? Who are those things? Who are those people? And when we talk about and we think about the others, how do we make sure that as we're talking about them and thinking about them, that they are then part of a conversation and not simply subjects of the conversation? And so while I know there's never going to be a single thing, I know there are things that do fundamentally matter. One of those things that does fundamentally matter is education matters. 
And it's not even from the, it's, it's not just from, that tra- from the traditional, oh, you know, if you get a, if you get a degree that you're, you'll have X amount of earning power more than everybody else. All that is true and all that's quantitatively factual. But here's also why it matters. Because education isn't simply just about what you're learning. It's also about who you're learning it from and who you're learning it with. It's about the fact that we're, we had a, I had a, a wonderful session with students earlier, and as I was explaining to them, it's about the fact that 70% of the jobs in this country are filled before they're even advertised. It's about social capital. It's about as you move up in education, your networks will change, your friendships will change, and your connections will change. It's about the fact that I think about Wes's mom how she was the first one in her family to go to college. She graduated from Baltimore City Community College with honors and then got accepted to Johns Hopkins University. She does two semesters at Johns Hopkins University and then one day she receives a letter indicating that her Pell Grants were cut. I can't help but think how different her life could have been had she had the chance to finish college. I can't help but think about the transformational quality that that could have not just given to her, but her children. And it's not lost on me that even now, a generation later, as she's sitting there watching television and watching breaking news, and they're talking about this murder, of a decorated police officer. And when the faces flash up on the television screen about who the police are looking for, and two of the faces that are flashing up on on those screens are her sons. How there are points of intervention that we know that we can do, not just for these boys. Forget about the boys for a second. Forget about this is a story of one kid who went off to uh, finished high school and college and grad school and another boy who never made it past 10th grade. Forget them. About how there are points of intervention in all of our lives that will have implications generations beyond. And another thing that I know that does fundamentally matter, our expectations matter. I remember once when I was talking with Wes and we were talking about Baltimore. And I remember asking him if he thought, if I, if he thought that we were products of our environments. Because I heard that expression so many times when I was growing up. I don't know if you all heard that expression, that people are products of their environments. People are products of their environments. I heard that expression so many times that I never even questioned it or challenged it anymore. Until now I've kind of come to the point that I think that part of the reason that people use that expression is because they're washing their hands of responsibility. Well, look at the neighborhood they come from. Look at who their parents are. Look at the school they go to. What do we expect? And oftentimes we say that people are products of their environment simply because it helps us to get to bed at night easier. Because it means that there's nothing we can do about it. And I remember I once asked Wes, and I said, so do you think that we're products of our environments? And Wes looked back at me and he said, actually, I think we're products of our expectations. 
And I thought to myself, he is absolutely right. We are not products of our environments. We're products of our expectations. And someone once said to me, they're like, it's a real shame that you lived up to your expectations and Wes didn't. And I said, actually, the real shame is that we both did. We both lived up to our expectations. Because the expectations that people have of themselves, they aren't born from nowhere. The expectations that people have of themselves come from the expectations that other people have of them and they simply internalize them and they make them their own. I don't care if you're talking about the State House or Capitol Hill, I don't care if you're talking about business or, or education or the military or nonprofit organizations, and I don't care if you're talking about state penitentiaries. All of those places are full of people who lived up to their expectations. So the expectations that we have for ourselves and the expectations that we then turn around and have for others, they matter because oftentimes these things become self-fulfilling prophecies. We can't act like if we have low expectations for people that they don't notice, that it's lost on them. We've got a lot of tremendous gaps in our society. We've got health gaps, we've got education gaps, we've got housing gaps. In my opinion, the most dangerous gap that we have in our society is the expectation gap. We just expect different things from different people. And if we can't address the expectation gap, then there is no other gap we're going to be able to fix. How we think about ourselves and how we think about others in relation to the world that we live in, it does matter. Because we cannot pretend like they don't notice. This is our opportunity. I know I stand here right now because there were people who believed in me. I know I stand here right now because there were people who saw something in me before I was ready to see it in myself. I know I stand here right now because there were people who were able to hold up my dreams long enough to wait for my shoulders to become broad enough that I now no longer need their help to hold them. I can hold them on my own. But I could not have done it without them. I stand here today because there are people who actually believed in a sense of freedom. And that I was a kid who might have it as well. And that's fundamentally all we're ever asked to do. That's our activism. To find that thing that breaks your heart. and make sure you do something about it. To find that cause that you would be willing to give everything for. To find that thing that you know that you want to be defined by. That you know you were able to move the needle on. And then go move that needle on it. We don't wait for permission. We don't wait for other people to tell us it's okay. We don't wait for people to tell us that it's time. We step up and we fight and we use our voice because we know it's the right thing to do. 
You know, I'll close. I had a, um, I had a colonel in military school, this military school that I went to. Um, this dude was as tough as nails. He was a three-time Vietnam veteran. Uh, my plea brothers and I said, we, we think we only saw him smile once. And I think it was an accident when we saw him smile. <laughs> but, uh, but he loved us. And, uh, and he was fair. And, and we loved him back. But he was losing weight really quickly. And one day he called the entire Corps of Cadets together and he told us that he was diagnosed with cancer. And he had to leave the school. And he gave this speech to us that in essence turned out to be his farewell address. And um, he said something to us that day during his speech that I will never forget. He said, when it's time for you to leave here, whether it's time for you to leave this school, whether it's time for you to leave your job, whether it's time for you to leave your community, or when it's time for you to leave this planet, make sure that it mattered that you were ever even here. Make sure that it mattered that you were ever even here, because none of us are promised anything. We aren't promised more days or more weeks or more years. You know, I was telling the students earlier, no one, no one has ever tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, Wes, you've got, whatever, 4,864 days left so you can pace yourself. And nobody ever will. And I'm actually, uh, I'm okay with that. So the only thing that we do know is that while we're here, Let's do something with it. While we're here, let's push. While we're here, let's fight. While we're here, let's love. While we're here, let's find that thing that we know that we can do something about. And do something about it. Let's find that person that we know we can make their life just a little bit easier and go make their life a little bit easier. Because if we've done that, then, we've been, then we're doing everything that we have ever been asked to do. If we've done that, then we're leading with love and we're leading with our heart and we're making our voice actually matter. If we do that, then we're going out and we're fighting for the others, which is the best use of our time. I'm incredibly humbled to not just be part of this forum, but I'm incredibly honored about this idea and this concept of activism. Because in essence, I think it's for all of us, it's our greatest calling. It's why we're here, to find that thing that we know that we want to fight and support. And once we've found that thing, it's the thing we're supposed to fight for and not let go of until our job is done. Bless you guys, and thank you so much for your time, for your service. Thank you.
Sweet man, thank you. Y'all are so sweet, thank you. Ladies and I gentlemen, thank, thank you. you. At this time, Wes will take questions from the audience. You may submit your questions again via Twitter using the hashtag Ian Thompson Forum, or simply write your questions on the cards here in the Lead Center provided by the ushers. Our first question comes from the Ian Thompson International Scholars. Yeah. Wes, we all know people like the other Wes, or someone on their way to becoming like him. What do you feel would make the greatest difference in changing their direction? Mm. Um, thank you, Thompson International Scholar, for starting with such an easy question. <laughs> um, it's a great question. Thank you. Uh, the first thing I would tell them is The moment that you have given up on yourself, that is the moment that everyone else has given up on you as well. Um, you know, we work with kids who are involved in the, uh, in, the juvenile, in the juvenile justice system in Baltimore City, which is a, a whole other thing that we could talk about, both Baltimore City and also the juvenile justice system. Um, and oftentimes, one of the comments that we'll get from people is say, like, you know, well, if this kid is, uh, you know, this kid is, uh, you know, if someone has given up on their future, then what can we do for them? And I say, then if, well, someone has truly given up on their future, then there's nothing that you can do for them. Nothing. Because you have to be your own greatest advocate. And if you don't, even, even the smallest kernel, if you aren't hopeful or thoughtful about your own future, it is going to be impossible to find people who will be thoughtful and concerned about your future either. So the first thing I have to say is you have to have a sense of belief and hope about where you can go. Now, where I think it matters for all of us though, is A, we have to do what we need to do to, do to make sure that people don't get to that point that they have lost hope in their future. And also we need to make sure that we are there to let them know that if you're willing to fight for yourself, that we're willing to fight for you as well. Part of the reason that people get to the point of disillusionment is when they feel like they're doing it on their own. That they don't have advocates. They don't have supporters. That nobody cares about their future. So why should they care about it? And in my opinion, the most dangerous thing that can happen is you show me a person who does not care about their own future, and you are also showing me a person that does not care about your future either. I think the best way to be able to deal with that and take, a, and, and take that on, though, is to make sure that we are being consistent. And I, and I go back to the example of the kids that we work with in, in Baltimore City, where uh, I remember we had a mentor um, she turned out to be one of our best mentors, but she was a, a girl from, a young woman from Edgewood, New Jersey, like an affluent area of New Jersey. 
and she came to an info session because she wanted to be a mentor and she was just like, well, I really want to work with this population, but um, these, are all, these are generally first and second time offenders, kids ranging from the ages of eight years old to 11, 12 years old, um, who, uh, who we work to mentor, befriend, and tutor to get back into school in Baltimore City. And she said, I really want to work with this population, but to be honest, we have nothing in common. Like, I went to independent schools my whole life. She's a student at Johns Hopkins. She's like, I'm just not sure where to begin. And, uh, and one of our mentors, one of our, our leaders, directors, told her, which I think was right on, he said, the only thing I ask is, are you willing to be consistent? Because the only consistency in many of our kids' lives is inconsistency. They're moving from house to house. They got people in and out of their lives. They have teachers in and out of their lives. They have, at times, parents in and out of their lives. They have probation officers in and out of their lives. The only consistency is inconsistency. And so he said to her, he said, the only thing I ask is, are you willing to be consistent? Because if you tell them that on Tuesday at 10 o'clock, I will be there, and if at Tuesday at 10 o'clock you are there, I will take you 10 times out of 10 versus the person who looks just like them or grew up around the corner from them and at Tuesday 10 o'clock is nowhere to be found. We need consistency. Because when a person feels like someone is consistently fighting for them and advocating for them, they begin to perform accordingly. And so I say to the international students, um, the thing we have to be prepared to do is we have to be prepared to love and to fight consistently for our students and our people because that's the only way that's going to keep them from having a sense of hope and confidence in their own future which is imperative for their own success thanks very much wes the next question comes from our audience this evening why do you think there has been such a turn away from the other in a state like nebraska in the steady stable midwest yeah um well first let me say it's not just nebraska this is, this is not a, if it makes y'all feel better, this is not a Nebraska problem. Um, I think there's been a steady turn away of the other all throughout our country. And I think there's been a steady turn away from the other all throughout our globe. And I think part of it is there's a feeling of instability about everyone's own personal place, right? It's a feeling of, will I lose my place? Will it harm me if I allow this person to be part of a conversation? Will it, will it, will it, you know, are, is this group or is this person or is this whatever, will it somehow disenfranchise me? So I get it. The thing I think it's important to remember, though, is twofold. One is we will never have honest conversations about the future of our communities if only a slither of the population is part of the conversation. And, and we're never going to have honest conversations about the future of our community if only a slither of the population is even being thought about in those conversations. And so I think it behooves us, if we're going to be able to move consistent, consistently and honestly, that we're able to get rid of that otherdom as quickly as possible, especially because there's not a single person in this room that at some point in their life that you were not the other. Everybody at some point has been that other. And so everyone should also understand what that feeling is like. And imagine 
if that's the only feeling that you know. The other thing that I think becomes really important to remember is we are never going to be a safe or secure society if we have the others. And, you know, I'll, I'll, you, you, you take, for example, you know, I'll, I'll take a, you know, I'll take one example. And again, this can be classified in a lot of different realms when we talk about the others. But let's take a population that we do a lot of work with, and those are our, our returning citizens, the ones who are returning from prisons. And oftentimes, I know there's almost a knee-jerk reaction about people, about people who are returning home, about, oh, well, they can't come back and take jobs, and they can't come back and do this, and they're threats to society, and so on and so forth. And again, I get it. I get the argument. But I also know this, is that if we have over a 60% recidivism rate inside of our society, recidivism is a person's propensity that once they're released from prison, that they will then be rearrested and put back into prison. First, we have to remember that they're being rearrested for something. That laws are still being broken, that you have, we're not then preparing people to return back to society, and we're not preparing society for their reentry. We're going to have a repeated problem that we then have to address. The second thing that I think we have to remember when we're having these debates and conversations, if a person returns back to society and they can't find stable employment and they can't find stable housing and they're not allowed to reintegrate with their families, they're going to find a way to survive. And I'm just not sure if it's going to be a way that any of us feel is productive or God-honoring. So when we're thinking about, when we're thinking about this, this, this integration of the others in our society, regardless of who those others are, we have to remember that if we aren't thinking about it in an encompassing way, and if we aren't thinking about it in a supportive way, and if we're not thinking about it in a way that can shed the, utter, the otherdom that oftentimes they feel, then that otherdom that they are possessing and that they are internalizing, it will be reflected in, a, in another way. And in a way that I think for none of us makes us better or safer or more secure. Question, how can we help increase someone's expectations? Mm. I think, uh, these are really good questions. Um, I think there's only two ways of, of, of doing that. Um, and that's exposure, and that's time. Um, yeah, I remember someone once asked me, they said, uh, you know, how do you change someone's thinking? And I say, you know, uh, you know, changing someone's thinking is the most difficult thing that we can do, even in terms of laws. Like, you can change laws, but you're never going to change someone's thinking with laws. Now, I'm a big believer that laws, that certain laws have to change. But I think, uh, you know, Dr. King actually said it best when he said, uh, uh, laws will never change the heart, but laws will protect you from the heartless. The only thing, though, that can change the heart, the only things that can change time, the only thing that can change someone's expectations is exposure and time. And I'll give a perfect example in my own life. I got very involved in the, in the don't ask, don't tell repeal movement. 
Um, and it wasn't because it was any way that something personally impacted me until it did personally impact me. Because one of my mentors, a person I met when I was 13 years old who helped to save my life and change the entire trajectory of my life, was, became my big brother. He was an army officer. He was one of the big reasons why I chose to join the army because I saw the amount of respect that he had. He was this army officer, so I was like, I want to be just like him. He was an army officer. He left the army after about four or five years in the army. He was still, he was my big brother while I was in military school. He was one of my best friends. He was a groomsman in my wedding. And I introduced him to one of my other friends who's a female. And she was really cute. He's a really, really nice, good looking guy. And I was like, oh, you guys should really meet. So I introduced them, they meet, they like each other. And now she's just like, hey, I really like Ty. I really like Ty. I'm like, that's great. I'm like, Ty. He's like, Ty, can I give her your number? Absolutely. Gave her a number and she didn't call. And he didn't call her. And I was like, Ty. What's up, man? You know, she's, she's cute. Why don't you call her? I know. She's like, I'm like, did he call yet? No, he didn't call. I'm like, all right, time, man. This is crazy. Like, she's, she's, she wants you to call her. Give her a call. And finally, he told me that he wasn't going to call her because he wasn't attracted to her. And I'm like, how are you not attracted to her? She's beautiful. And he explained what he meant by I wasn't attracted to her. I later on found out that the reason that he left the military was because he had the audacity of telling his commanding officer his truth. And he was then asked to leave the military within two months. I know people who are in the military who get discharged for violence and drugs, and it takes them months. It takes them six, eight months to get out, and it took him two. And um, he's one of the best men I've ever known. He's one of the best leaders I've ever known. I would trust my son or my daughter under his command. And I could not for the life of me understand a single argument that people were making as to why in any way having Ty remain a member of the military was somehow affecting our national security. In fact, the argument that I was making is I actually thought it was a hindrance to our national security when you allow someone like him not to serve. And, and so I said, I was like, you know, and I tried to get clear in my own mind. I said, if, if I could hear a legitimate argument as to how this is somehow making us less safe or somehow this was hurting the units that I proudly served with, then I'm listening. But I haven't heard a single argument. And so I got involved in the repeal of don't ask, don't tell, because I said, this is a policy that is not only not making us safe, it's morally indefensible. And, um, what got me around to that point, again, it wasn't something that personally affected me. And it wasn't something I even thought about when I joined the military. And I, when I first joined the military, when I was 17 years old, it, I didn't notice that no one ever asked me my orientation. I just kind of just did my job. 
But the thing that changed my mind and my heart and my voice and my activism on this issue was exposure and time. So I think as we talk about building out and changing expectations for other people, we have to find people that are willing to expose themselves to that. They have to be willing to expose themselves to a new type of exposure and to learn and to be open-minded that they then can learn. And then we have to give them time. And if we do those two things, then I think we can actually watch large sales societal expectation, expectation changes on issues that we care deeply about. Next question from a member of our audience this evening. How would you recommend that I respond to a friend who thinks that all Americans have an equal chance to succeed? I would, uh, <laughs> I, um, you know, but this, this is actually a really, it's, it's a really important question. Um, because, uh, I oftentimes will hear people make the argument and they'll even say about, you know, kind of, you know, my story where, uh, you know, this is a great example of, of when someone works hard that they can make it. And I was telling the students earlier, uh, uh, a great example of this is, is Nick Kristoff, who's an op-ed writer for the New York Times, who's actually the husband of, of Cheryl Wudunn. Um, he contacted me a few years back and he was just like, I, I really enjoyed your book, The Other West Morning, I'd like to write an op-ed about your book, with the book as the basis. And I said, that's wonderful, and that's great. And he wrote this really beautiful op-ed about how he said, I really enjoyed this book because it was a great examin examination of race and class in our society. And um, uh, a few weeks later, I got a message from my publisher who said, great news, Michael Gerson wants to write an op-ed about your book. He's an op-ed writer for the Washington Post, the Washington Times, he's a former speechwriter for President Bush. He's a conservative, right? And he writes this beautiful op-ed where he said, I thought this was a great examination of personal responsibility and the impact of, of individual decision-making. And, and I'm like, and I, I was telling, I said, oh, this is fascinating. Um, <laughs> because really these are two people who don't agree on a whole lot, who are both saying they liked it and for two completely different reasons. And when my wife asked me, she says, so who do you think is right? I told her, I think they're both right. Because I think you can't talk about societal responsibility without understanding, but at the end of the day, these are individual decisions that are being made and people have to be held to account for their individual decisions. However, we can't just simply look at individual decisions that are being made without understanding that these decisions are being made in a societal context. And so there is a marriage between these two. So I think one of the things that we have to do when people will make the argument that this is all about if people just would work harder or everyone has the same type of shot, I think it's important to be able to expose people to the fact that that's just not true. It's how we want it to be. And I think we've made amazing strides in order to get closer to that ideal. But when we still have kids who are growing up in abject poverty, when we still have kids who by their first birthday are already, already have lead-based based poisoning, when we have kids who are going to schools that have a 50 plus percent dropout rate, it's difficult to make an argument that everybody has the same access and has the same opportunity to succeed. And, um, and I don't think that's just something that kind of on a 
affluent versus non-affluent basis. You know, one of the things we actually started doing with our, our students back in, back in Baltimore, the ones I'm telling you about with the juvenile justice program is, and these are kids with some of the biggest chips in their shoulder. I mean, real, real reasons to have them too. Kids who, they were just dealt a raw hand from Jump Street. And, uh, but one thing one of our directors started to do, which I thought was a brilliant idea, he wanted to take some of the hardest kids, some of the ones who have the biggest chips on their shoulders, and he started taking them to Johns Hopkins University Hospital. And he took them to the pediatric oncology unit and introduced those students to a five-year-old with terminal cancer whose face lights up simply because she came in to say hello. Take them to the burn unit. Introduce them to that nine-year-old who now has third-degree burns over 50% of her body because her mother was getting high two nights ago and accidentally lit the house on fire. And then tell me how bad you have it. Understand there are people on this planet who on your worst day would trade places with you in a second. On your worst day. They trade with you in an instant if they could. We don't yet live in a society where all things are equal or all things are fair or every opportunity is an equal opportunity. But that's also why we keep working together and that's also why we keep fighting. That's our ideal. And until we get there, it just means we have work to do. Thank you, Wes. Our next question comes from the Ian Thompson Forum Twitter feed. Mr. Moore, as a high school teacher, I'm curious as to what things your teachers did that had the greatest impact on you. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, I actually think one of the biggest things that my teachers did, first to that teacher, thank you for your service. Um, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I actually think one of the most important things that my teachers did for me was they never accepted excuses. I, uh, and what I mean by that is this. I think I had some teachers in my life who uh, some were just amazing, amazing people who just helped change me and shape me. And I think I had some who, um, who I wish I could have had a conversation with. Um, and for a lot of them, it wasn't even malicious, right? For a lot of them, they were doing what they thought was in my best interest, but it was kind of like, I never had to make excuses because they were too busy making them for me. It was kind of like, you know, well, you know, you know, you heard about what happened to his father, right? You do know what happened in his, in his neighborhood last weekend. You heard about his uncle got arrested, right? They were so busy making excuses for me that I didn't even have to make them. I had no time to make them for myself. I wish for every teacher and all my best teachers, one of the things they had for me was they understood that you are never doing me a favor when you tell me that I cannot compete with somebody else. You're never doing me a favor by telling me that my bar is lower than any of the other students. You're never doing me a favor by lowering my bar of expectations. You're not helping me out. You're not doing me a favor by telling me I can't compete. 
I think, you know, Booker T. Washington said something, and I'll, and I'll paraphrase him, where he said, if you break a man's spirit, you never have to escort him to the back door. He'll walk there himself. You never have to escort him to the back door because he will walk there himself. And so I think the thing that, if I were to put one thing that the greatest teachers did for me was they loved me and they cared for me. And even if they understood my situation might have been different than a lot of kids in school, they never let that be my deficiency. They never let that be my hindrance. They said, I understand it and I acknowledge it and I feel for you and I still expect you to perform. Because what they did was they set the tone in my own mind about I should never, ever put myself in a position or expect anything lower than anyone else around me. That I'm just as good and talented and I'm ready to compete with anybody no matter what. And in fact, what they did was they said because of some of the things that you have seen and gone through, I actually think in many ways you're more prepared because that's your armor. You're never going to see anything ever again in life that's ever going to make you flinch. And they're right. And that's your secret weapon. Thank you, Wes. Several of our members of the audience would like to know if the other Wes has read your book, and if so, what was his reaction? Yes, yes, thank you. And uh, he has, so in fact, and, and I'll tell you, uh, this is an evidence of where he is. So he read the book about, probably about three months, four months before the book was set to come out. And I, and I sent him a bound copy of the book. And uh, it was actually sent back to me with kind of a stamping saying, this is a prison. And so the way that Wes read the book before the book came out was I literally, literally had to mail him 15 pages at a time. That's how he read the book. Wes is currently in year 14 of a life sentence without parole. Wes is in a maximum security facility currently right now in Jessup, Maryland. I don't, even, I don't know, even know what, what time it is. If I looked at a watch or saw what time it is, I could tell you what Wes is probably doing right now, and I have not talked with him today, but the reason I can tell you what he's probably doing right now is because I have his schedule memorized and it doesn't change. And I remember after he read the book, I asked him what he thought. This was probably about two months before the book came out, and he said he had two main opinions. He said, one, he said it was amazing how much research went into it. Because I literally do hundreds of hours of interviews with Wes, his friends and family, my friends and family, to make sure you're really getting the facts and the feel of the story right. And the second thing was, he said, after reading about his life in a book like that, it's amazing how little that he's done with his life. And, uh, but the thing that's really taken me about it is also his, his reaction to the feedback to it. The fact that it's, we've received thousands of letters from parents and teachers and students. How it's being made part of curriculum in school districts. I remember I got a letter from a teacher last, uh, last year saying that this is the third time she's used the other Westmore in her classroom. And she says inevitably, every single time she uses it, her kids, will raise, her kids will tell her, this book is about my dad, this book is about my brother, this book is about my mom, this book is about my sister, this book is about me. And she said she was handing the book out to these students, and she said for the third time they were using it, and she said uh, she was telling them about the story, and she said one of, the kid raised, one of the kids raised her hand and said, this book is about my dad. And she said, you know, I know a lot of kids will say that, and he said it again, and she said, okay, now you're disturbing class day after class. And as he stayed after class and she started talking with him, she realized that the boy in her class 
is Wes's oldest son. And immediately as she realized that, she apologized and she's like, I, she's like, Johnny, I am so sorry. I had no idea. I was not trying to embarrass you. We can pick another book. And he told her, he said, no, he said, my dad wants people to know his story. And she proceeded then to teach the other Westmore in her classroom with, John, with Wes's oldest son as a member of her class. So I think Wes is a, Wes knows this is not going to impact his life. But I think he does have a real hope that hopefully it can impact lives coming up behind him and help them to understand, even as he said, when he was, you know, when he, when he was recommending that I write it, he said, if you can show people the consequences for their decisions and also show people the neighborhoods that these decisions are being made in, then you should do it. And that then became the fire and the focus behind the entire project. Thanks, Wes. Ladies and gentlemen, before Wes takes his final question, I want to remind you to mark your calendar for the next Ian Thompson Forum event. As Wes reminded us earlier, it features Cheryl Wudun. It's February 2nd here at the Lead Center at 7 o'clock. So please plan to join us. Wes, one last question from our Twitter feed this evening. What is the best thing your mom taught you to help you be the man you are today? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Did she tweet that in? <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is, this is just, it's, it's, a very, it's a very personal answer for me. Uh, it's not trying to tell anyone else what to do or, or, or think. Um, but I think the most important thing that she's ever taught me and tried to teach me and tried to make me, and, and has led by example, is she wanted to teach me to love God. Um, I think about my journey, and really my journey in, 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 in faith uh, has not always been a straight line. Where my, my grandfather was a, was a minister, and, and I remember we used to have to go to church to go hear him preach, and I remember every time I'd, I'd hear him preach, um, the only thing I was kept on looking for is I would keep looking at the clock and hope that he would be done preaching by kickoff so I can go make the football games. Um, and I, it wasn't until I really got older that I realized that uh, the times when I felt like I was most alone were the times that I was most being supported. And the times that I felt like I, uh, that, that so many people had always just given up on me was he was there to remind me that he would never give up on me. Um, and when I, went to my grand, when I went to Afghanistan, my grandparents gave me a, uh, a pocket Bible, you know, the kind of the little, the little New Testament Bibles. And, um, and I kept it inside my, my flak vest right over my heart. And every mission we went on, I, I put this inside of, our, inside of my, my flak vest. And, uh, and inside of the, of, the, of the little Bible, my, my grandparents wrote, have faith, not fear. And I remember I would recite that to myself before every mission we went on. Have faith, not fear. Have faith, not fear. Have faith, not fear. I'm, uh, I'm convinced that that was an umbrella that sat over us as we went on our missions. And, um, 
And I think my mother has, uh, has taught me a whole lot of lessons that I'm, I'm glad that she taught me. And she's lived her life and lived an example that I, if I'm, if I'm half the parent that she is, then I'm doing a pretty good job. Um, but I think consistently reminding me that I'm not alone and consistently reminding me to love God, uh, that has been the lesson that I think has most served as my foundation with everything that I try to do.